Welcome to The Glow Show from Grow Lab Organics, hosted by Charlie Lyons. Well, welcome everyone to the first season of a brand new show called The Glow Show, brought to you from Grow Lab Organics. I will be your weekly host. My name is Charlie Lyons. I'm a co-founder of the company and the chief creative officer. And we're going to be going on a weekly journey into the power of cannabis. This show is going to bring together some of the most cutting edge minds from the global cannabis community. Um, The industry is taking shape in front of our eyes at some pace now. It's a really exciting time globally for cannabis. Obviously, there's huge movement in the North American market and other areas of the world. But Europe feels like it's a little bit behind. But for those reasons, it's maybe even more exciting because we're kind of at the foot of the mountain. It's a frontier industry. And the coming years are going to be super exciting. And the show is going to really allow us to look across that full spectrum of the industry. We're going to be focusing on the plant and all of the wonder that it holds, uh, looking at patients and some of the different conditions and challenges that these groups face, the brands that are helping you know, shape the industry and bring it to life, the rich culture of cannabis, which is thousands and thousands of years old and wrapped around that, the history, and hopefully through uh, the guests that we bring on the show and our own journey as Grow Lab Organics or Glow as we love to be known, um, there's going to be some exciting and wild stories along the way. And I can't wait to get started. Uh, so thank you very much for joining me on this journey. So we've got a great guest this week, and we're really excited to, to speak to him a little bit later on. Our guest is Paul Rosen. Uh, many of you will know uh, Paul as the co-founder of Pharmacan and then Kronos Group. So was there right at the start of all of the explosion in cannabis uh, in Canada. He has been there. He's seen it. He's done it. He's got pretty much every single t-shirt. He's probably got a few hoodies as well. Uh, he's not just involved in cannabis. He's also involved in psychedelics and ocean technology. And frankly, what he doesn't know about cannabis isn't worth knowing. So we're really delighted to have him on the show this week. Uh, and I think it's a, a great first guest for us because I'm excited to ask him what it felt like to be there right at the beginning in those roles. It feels very comparable to where Glow is and where Europe is at the moment as we kind of roll into this into this journey, which is super exciting, as I'm sure you will all agree. So I thought I'd take a couple of minutes just to talk about Glow and where we are right now. I'm going to be giving you updates on, on our company and our journey uh, as we continue on our mission to help people live better lives through the power of cannabis. You know, we're a British cannabis company, one of the few that's coming through at the moment. Um, our, our headquarters or our main site is, uh, is on the Isle of Man. And we're super busy at the moment, focusing all of our energy on executing our plans for the year ahead and beyond that, you know, across cultivation, our facility, uh, our products and our services. We've got a big technology play at the heart of our business, which is involving the blockchain. And we'll talk more about that. And of course, we're really, really focused on patients. We exist completely to serve them. And as the space hots up, um, you know, we're going to be bringing a lot of leading minds from both North America and Europe and further afield, Israel, Australia, onto the show um, to talk about the industry and where we're going. And we did a lot of that at the end of uh, last year. We asked many of the leading minds in the space, you know, how they felt the year had been and what are their hopes and aspirations for the year ahead. And I think one of the themes that really came through was the sort of the slow pace of the last year. And a lot of that was really around legislation and things not really happening as fast as we, the the industry, and obviously the patients all want. We're still seeing that there is not enough product on the market. The choice is quite limited. The quality is not quite there yet. Obviously, these things are changing. And I think Glow is going to have a big role in improving and accelerating some of this. So we're really hoping that the pace picks up this year and we're excited to play a leading role in uh, driving that change and really bringing more choice, better quality um, and reducing harm to help people live better lives through the power of cannabis, as I said. So that's all uh, exciting stuff. And we'll keep you updated as the, the weeks and months go by. But in the meantime, let's get on with the show. And uh, as I said, our main guest this week is Paul Rosen. Uh, I want to extend a very warm welcome to him. He is a cannabis legend. You know, I've already mentioned some of his background, but as I said, he's been there from the start and through his journey, he's got so many different things to tell us, things we can learn from, things we should be excited about. And I'm interested also to understand what he thinks 
the future holds for cannabis and the industry at large. So without further ado, uh, Paul, let the audience know who you are. Charlie, thank you so much for having me here. Hello, my name is Paul Rosen. I am uh, in Toronto, Canada, my hometown. I'm a Canadian attorney by training, but relevant to what we're going to talk about today. I've been an executive and a founder in the cannabis industry since 2012. I co-founded a company called Pharmacan Capital Corporation, which became known as the Kronos Group, a fairly well-known cannabis entity. And I am currently the chairman and chief executive officer of 1933 Industry, a licensed cannabis entity operating in the great city of Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm the executive chairman of Global Go, a truly global cannabis advisory service, seeing all sorts of cannabis entrants and existing stakeholders. And I'm also a co-founder of a functional food brand in cannabis called Pantry, based in beautiful California. Wow. I mean, not much time for much else going on there, Paul, with all those things you have happening. Talk us through, maybe just like give us a couple of your proudest moments in your career highlight reels so far, just to kick us off and warm us up. I'm not very good at self-aggrandizement, but a few things along the way. I mean, in my career, I'll tell you a couple of really notable highlights for me. Uh, some of them in cannabis, Charlie, and a few of them outside of cannabis. The thing I'm really most proud about is when I was 29 years old, I went to the Supreme Court of Canada, which is our highest court. Our highest court, by the way, used to be the House of Lords. But after we repatriated our constitution, uh, our highest court is the Supreme Court of Canada. So that really is like Carnegie Hall for lawyers, if you will. I was able to take my own constitutional case to Ottawa, as we call it. And I think I'm to date still the youngest Canadian ever to successfully litigate their own case at the Supreme Court of Canada. When that ended, I called my wife and I said, okay, I have to leave law now because I just got to the, I just summited Everest and I don't know where to go from here. And it's unlikely I'll ever get back. So I would say that's my number one career highlight. A second highlight is taking, um, my first company public in 2014, which was Pharmacan Capital Corporation, we went public on my birthday of all days. And uh, that was incredible. The whole drama of like leading up to an IPO and then actually opening up the exchange, ringing the bell, all that sort of like excitement. So that was an incredible moment in my career and one that I will cherish forever. And I have a few other highlights, but I'm hoping that the best is still yet to come. Yeah, that's nice. And I'm sure it is. So you've touched on some good stuff in there, and we're going to come through that as we we talk more. You mentioned Pharmacan and the kind of journey there. Uh, I would love us to sort of go back in time, slow time down to what that period was like. Obviously, the world watches Canada with extreme interest in the developments that happen in the cannabis industry is very much the kind of leading force for um, many of the global markets to watch and follow. Tell me what that time was like when, you know, you guys were kind of coming through. There was obviously the post-prohibition, the legalization of everything happening, lots of money coming in. You're moving from that uh, legacy market. Talk me through how it felt, the kind of characters that were around and and what was happening in in those periods. I'm so glad you used the phrase legacy market, the term black market. It's pejorative and it's misleading. We, quite frankly, Charlie, stand on the shoulders of that legacy market. I wouldn't be here today and I don't think you would be either but for the incredible contributions of other people. And these contributions were often paid for in their own personal liberty. Now, that time was maybe, no, undoubtedly one of the most exciting times of my career because it was all green field and blue sky. When we, myself and my fellow co-founders, founded Pharmacan, we didn't even really know exactly what target we were aiming at. That is to say that the Canadian government had been speaking about bringing in through the legislature a commercial licensing program, but they hadn't actually codified it yet into law. And we began when there was not really even a program in which to apply to, to look to enter the industry and to raise capital. And it was sort of the Wild West at the time. There was definitely some reputational stigma at that time entering the cannabis industry. I know for myself that I kept it quiet and I kept it under wraps. I uh, continue to own and operate a company that's in global hospitality. And I was quite frankly, at that time, quite concerned that my customers in that industry, many of which were American and conservative in their politics, would view me quite negatively if they found out that I was beginning to participate in what is and has become a obviously a legal industry. 
So I kept it off my LinkedIn and I really sort of kept it to myself. But ultimately, it was an incredibly exciting time because we really, you know, I've had the, a great fortune of building companies many times in my life. I've started and founded uh, 13 companies in my career, but I really felt we were doing something that was bigger than just our company, that we were actually helping to architect at a preliminary level what a whole new industry would look like. So if starting a company is exciting, participating in an industry that really doesn't exist at the time, and we're going to help put our etching, if you will, on what this industry is going to look like, uh, it was just an incredibly exciting time. And I will say that those first two or three years will forever be some of my fondest memories in the cannabis industry. I would even say there was an innocence at the time. Big money had not come in yet. The billion dollar valuations had not been achieved yet. And it was just so much fun, to be honest, to start navigating the opportunities, taking it to potential investors, having the door slammed in my face more times than I can count, picking myself up, getting back in the next room, and ultimately, you know, quite frankly, succeeding. So I'm a startup guy. I love those early years where it's not fully formed and you're not mm. quite sure this is going and you're sort of walking a tightrope there's a very good chance you're going to fall and crash but you're you're kind of like Icarus trying to fly up into the heavens but not get so close to the sun that the wax on your wings melts and mm. I will say for me even though the industry has become validated and you know the money uh, the the returns on our investment capital and our time have gone beyond what I imagined I'm a, a little bit nostalgic and I guess I'm a little bit mm. envious you are right now where you're at the beginning of your journey in a jurisdiction that's just getting socialized. And I have to say, it's a beautiful place you're in right now. And it was a beautiful experience for myself and my fellow co-founders. I was actually going to ask you that because the legacy, we are very much in that position in the British Isles at the moment, in the UK, Europe as well. We've had a really deep, sophisticated legacy market, which continues, obviously, because we're not in an adult use jurisdiction yet. We're, we're strictly medicinal. How did you leverage? Because some of the knowledge that's available from the legacy market from people that haven't turned their lights off for 20 years or whatever, there's so much skill, talent, knowledge out there. How did you guys go about liberating some of that into the kind of the, the legal world and the light? Because some people don't want to switch, right? But what was that like? It, it's essential to to acknowledge the incredible historical contribution of the legacy market, but not to put it in a time capsule. It's important to lean on that experience and actually turn it into an asset in your own company. So we did exactly that. The way it worked in Canada, Charlie, is that we had this kind of hybrid market that was operating under licenses. Uh, and I'll just give you a, a very quick and hopefully painless history lesson in Canada. We had a medical cannabis program dating back to the early 1990s, which was not an act of any legislature. It was a imposition that our Supreme Courts, our appellate courts imposed upon the governments. And basically, they found favor with a class, with a class of plaintiffs in a lawsuit that argued that if a doctor believes that cannabis is an effective medicine to treat a condition that the patient is suffering from, the government shouldn't make that illegal. And essentially, we allowed at that time patients to grow their own cannabis. When our appellate court said, you have to provide access to this, there was like literally eight patients that brought a lawsuit. It became sort of a grow your own. What happened though, between the early 90s and then say 2012, 2013, when we updated our program is we had something like 9,000 individual growers that were operating under licenses with no oversight, no inspection, no testing, no fire and safety, none of the things that are the hallmarks right now. However, those companies were likely the companies most likely to graduate from these personal licenses to the commercial licenses. So most of our early investments at Pharmacan were in the legacy operators. So not only were they welcome at our party, they actually were essential to our business model. We tried to identify what we thought were the most responsible operators under the old system. And let's say under the old system, there was a lot of 
and professionalism. There was a lot of product that was going to the gray market, if you will, wasn't going to the patients. There was a lot of overgrowing, but there were still people that were operating under a license for up to 15 or 20 years before our commercial program. So at Pharmacan, our first four or five investments were all in these legacy operators. Now, they may not be the legacy operator that we went to in you know, college that uh, was living in a dank basement apartment <laughs> that would tell you, you know, your quarter, but they weren't far off from that. They were still mm-hmm. operating in an unregulated environment, and they knew something that we didn't know, <laughs> how to actually grow cannabis. And it required sort of a meeting of the minds, if you will, the professional class coming in, uh, meeting the legacy and finding common cause that we had scales that they would benefit from in this kind of new world order, but they had essential scales that we needed to acquire or merge with in order to build the businesses that we went on to build. So it really was a marriage, if you will. And that continues, I would say it's never been more that need to rely upon some of the legacy experience and knowledge, because there's some brilliant genetics, brilliant growers, even, you know, I would say brilliant business people that were operating really complicated businesses, but not under license. So if you don't honor and actually find a way to embed those type of executives into your business, I'll say that you will make it what is a challenging business even more challenging. Talk to me about the um, the authorities in this period, right? Because things are changing for them all the time. What was their role in the sort of new world order and how did they adjust and develop and was it difficult? Was it easy? Did you work with them? Obviously in Canada, we were blessed with a very cooperative civil service that was also very new on this file. So we had essentially the federal government, which was in charge of our supply chain and our licenses, created a office of cannabis essentially which was designed to both help the industry develop best practices as well as enforce best practices. And I will say uh, for the first couple of years, our regulator was particularly heavy handed in terms of their expectations there. We had all of us that our early licenses got used to the fact that we would have random audits at any time, sometimes up to two or three times a month. That's when there'd be a knock on your door you know, your 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 steel door with cameras over it and an auditor would come in, everyone would stop, they would spend a day or two days reviewing all your SOPs, looking at your videotapes to make sure that every area where cannabis is present is only staffed by people that have security clearance. And they did something that I really commend the the government is they they kind of scared us straight. That is to say, they made it very clear from the beginning that Big Brother is in the room and Big Brother is keeping score of every gram from seed to sale. And that was important because it helped establish a sort of a rigorous commitment towards compliance and authentication, which has served the Canadian industry so well. Was it a pain in the ass? It was an enormous pain in the ass. Yeah. Was sometimes like almost like a Kafka level of technocratic bureaucracy. It most certainly was. But we have to remember that for the regulator, this was brand new and they didn't know it. And what made it sort of really productive is I never really felt that they were out to, you know, crack heads. I felt they were a true partner. They needed us and we needed them. And while we were afraid of them, because technically they had the ultimate ability to keystroke our license out of existence, uh, they really weren't in the business of trying to shut us down. They were in the business of trying to improve our practices Mm. and were impeccable. And I will say that uh, it made our industry much uh, more solid, much more durable, and frankly, much more investable. So, And then what happened, Charlie, is over time, they began to lessen, not lessen the rules, but lessen the oversight. Because at some point, that they lived in our head. We didn't need them knocking on the door. They were right inside our cerebral cortex. And mm-hmm. everything we did and continue to do is always with the mindset that of the many things we need to accomplish, compliance is at the top of our stack. And it continues mm-hmm. today, whether I'm operating in a, 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 an American licensed entity, when you are operating under a license and that license is subject to revocation, And your whole business depends upon compliance, no matter what your other goals are, profitability, you know, great branding, uh, DTC strategies, et cetera, expansion. You have to never, ever 
reduce your commitment towards compliance because that mm-hmm. golden your license is your business and without it you don't have a business so i'm grateful and it, there was times where it was a little bit like ah this is driving me crazy who can do this who can keep up but it's necessary and i will say it has helped create an incredible durable and growing industry yeah i mean we echo that over here i mean we're obviously right at the start of our journey as you point out but we, we've continually run towards the regulator uh, lots of people we know tend to either wait or or even run away but you're going to have to face them at some point. And um, everything that we are looking to produce is in the pursuit of giving patients and customers the best possible medicine or products. So they want it. They want to know what's in their medicine. They want to see how it's been produced. The regulator wants to know that. So you can't run away from it. You've got to run towards it. So you, you touched on this in at the top uh, as one of your, your highest accoladed moments as obviously taking companies public. Talk me through that journey. You know, lots of cannabis companies have IPO strategies as part of their um, their DNA or their roadmap, or at some point they're thinking about that. Obviously, there is a lot of money coming into the sector in various markets and jurisdictions around the world at various stages. You know, I've been part of and seen you know companies that have gone through this journey, and it's a, a wild ride. I'm guessing you didn't really have any preparation for it. So tell me what it was like and uh, how you felt at that time and, and, and what you were doing. You know, I'm generally against going public. <laughs> uh, I should say that. And and it's funny because I'm a three-time public CEO and uh, two of those companies I, I took. I, when I say I took public, I was part of management that went public. Obviously, it wasn't me alone. Um, but I do think, you know, it, it creates both opportunity and risk. So just to answer your question, the run-up to go public was um, ch- challenging, to be honest, because yet again, more regulators to deal with. Not only are we dealing with our cannabis regulator, now we're dealing with the stock exchange. It's their exchange. We need to get their permission to list. And we're dealing now with our securities regulators, uh, the Ontario Securities Commission in Canada. And so it just, again, takes an already regulated industry and it adds additional layers of um, compliance and regulation. And it really is um, something I learned the hard way is that when you go public, it's almost like having a second company on top of the operating company. And the operating company has its, you know, has a a tremendous amount of challenges all by itself. And then you take it public and you need to now recognize that there's an additional set of skills that are required to run the public entity. And I recall when I took my second company public the night before we had a number of you know, young associates in the company. And the night before we actually IPO'd, obviously there was a tremendous amount of excitement. We had like a little office party. There was some alcohol. There may have been a few joints along the way. And everyone was like, you know, a thousand feet off the ground or a thousand meters off the ground. And I sort of like, you know, the experienced gray hair guy in the room told everyone, enjoy this moment. It is truly a career highlight that many people will never get to experience. But tomorrow morning, you're going to see that we basically have to run a second company, the public entity. And the public entity has its own needs and requirements and challenges above and beyond the operating company. So typically, I would encourage a cannabis company not to go public when it's in the first couple of years. Why did so many companies go public in Canada and in America? because they could not unlock the investment capital that they needed to grow their businesses without providing those investors with liquidity. And I would say that's really, in some instances, unfortunate, because a number of companies that I think are promising or were promising in Canada and in the States lost their thread, if you will, once Mm -hmm. they went public and the markets didn't support them. One of the things I don't like about being a public company is that you lose control over your narrative and your valuation narrative. I I am a pretty good champion for what I'm doing and generally using quantitative and qualitative analysis, feel like I can uh, credibly assert and obtain a valuation that is defendable, but aspirational, we'll say. What about you? You referenced, you know, you had a lot of energetic young people or, or, or a mix of people like culturally. And, and this thing I think is fascinating because cannabis has an, a unique opportunity as a, an emerging sector, right? Certainly in Europe, it's a frontier industry. We have the ability not to import many of the 
problems that exist from a cultural perspective in other industries or other sectors. You know, we, we've got a clean slate. We can have a really diverse, authentically diverse working environments with really unique cultures. The plant is, has such a diverse customer base, old, young, you know, black, white, red, green, blue. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter what your gender is. You know, you can consume cannabis and enjoy it as a medicine, as a social lubricant, as whatever you want, right? Um, so the plant, the plant has such a broad church of user, and we have this opportunity to create a very diverse industry. I don't necessarily think we are doing that at the moment. But did that, when you've done things like list companies, is that or taken them public? Has that changed cultures? Is that some of what you're alluding to when you say you don't think cannabis companies should go too early? I don't think it changed the culture so much. I think it just potentially, like going public has to serve a, a broader business objective. So why, like the question is, when I'm approached by companies that I'm maybe just giving some advice to and they say, what do you think about going public? I kind of hold a mirror back to them and say, what business purpose does going public serve? Now, it can serve a business purpose. It can theoretically lower your cost of capital. That's a good thing. Theoretically, not necessarily, but theoretically. And it can provide an alternative currency for mergers and acquisitions, i.e. I technically can, well, not technically, we've seen literally hundreds of instances where a public company can acquire a private company and they can mostly pay for the acquisition using their stock. And we all know that this is a cash intense industry. So the more you can hoard your cash, the better. So it does not so much sort of change the culture, but you really have to, it has to really serve a greater purpose. And if it doesn't do either of those two things, lower your cost of capital, or provide you with a, a creative currency in which to do M&A, then the only reason left to go public is I can't even raise the threshold money I need to get my business out of the starting gates unless I go public, because that's what all the bankers are, are telling me. Definitely to your point, though, once you're public, um, and right now, I think it's essential that the world understand that diversity isn't just something that we talk about to make ourselves feel good. Diver the more diverse your organization, the better is your organization. If our customers represent diversity, which they do, just like you said, old, young, men, women, religion, race, complete diversity, and the company is that trying to service that broad, diverse market is a bunch of white men, I'm going to say they're going to miss an opportunity because they can't see outside their own view scope. So mm. all organizations, public or private, should aspire to have their executive team represent what their customer base looks like so they can have greater insights. The difference is a public company is on view, on display. So it, people may not know at a private company that all your executives are white males. The thing about being a public company is pretty much everything you do has to be transparent. It's like, imagine your worst day, you have to press release your worst day, your best day, you get to press release it as well. Everything is really essentially, you know, doors open, windows open, blinds open. And that's good. That actually creates opportunity to build that, you know, to respond to the pressure that great broader society will put on your organization to be more diverse, and it will make you a better organization for it. That's one of the great things about being a public company is you will ultimately be a better operating company because you will have much more pressure put on you by wider constituencies whose input you wouldn't otherwise be able to incorporate in your business plan, but for the fact that you were public. It was interesting. Just, I just want to touch on the cash thing, because obviously we know in the States in the early phases and even now, like banking is difficult and cash, you hear all stories about people driving cash around and all the rest of it. What was it like in Canada? Um, we did not have the dichotomy have that having uh it legal at a provincial level and illegal at a federal level we what made canada compelling and what made the banks by and large you know not too averse to participating was that we were operating under you know federal licenses so we didn't have this you know dichotomy that exists in the united states meaning that we did not we did not really need to bank in cash. Like at the end of the day, we did not need to take our receipts in cash and drive it in an armored truck over to the bank or the credit union. That being said, I, we had to, we had our bank account closed at PharmaCan twice by one of my top five Canadian banks. And I would meet with 
you know, my counterpart at the bank and I would say, you know, I am operating, I'm essentially no different than a pharmaceutical company. I'm operating with a license from the same government that gave you your banking license. So how could you not let me bank here? But their view is we have, we're under no obligation to host anybody if we choose not to. And we're just making a decision right now that because you're in the cannabis industry, we won't bank you. Happily, the bank next door wanted to bank us, but that was a little bit of a of a holy blank moment. I was was not expecting it. Now I've been participating in the US cannabis industry there. It's much more challenging, much more difficult. And you have to be, you know, we had a, I came up with an expression when I was running Tether Royalty, which was a US finance company, US cannabis finance company. And that was how not to break the law while you are actually breaking the law. And yeah. What that means is, okay, we are breaking one law, the Controlled Substances Act. As long as we are, quote unquote, touching the plant, you know, we are violating that law. We are operating under safe harbor from the state that we're in. But still, technically, we don't know if the DEA may come in one day and shut us down. It's a risk that we were willing to take. But there's other risks that also come into play around money laundering, proceeds of crime. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the rules about when you receive money, not moving it from one state to another state, that could cause all sorts of issues, mail fraud, and you could be subject to federal prosecution, not for touching the plant, but for how you dealt with the money associated with the plant. So that really does create challenging conditions. And yes, there are actually still many U.S. cannabis companies that are compliant, paying all their taxes, that are doing daily cash deposits of upwards of a million dollars. It's also just a, a public safety challenge because suffice it to say, it's been many instances where um, uh, whoever is querying the money from location A to the, the bank or the credit union is unfortunately interceded by a criminal element that steals the money. So one of the mm. reasons why there's such a momentum to pass the Safe Banking Act in the States isn't necessarily so, you know, big business can come in or we can list on U.S. exchanges. It's to protect the people from getting carjacked or robbed or even scenarios when they're moving cash around. Yeah, it's it's still pretty crazy, right? Okay, so you've always been entrepreneurial nature. You know, you've played this out in some of the the stories you've told so far on the show. Tell, Tell me and the listeners two things like what are you looking for when you're investing in a business and how do you decide on ideas you want to take as your own and and launch yourself through one of your companies you know early on what we were looking for was uh would you get a license or not because we did i did a lot of investing in pre-licensed entities and before i could even evaluate you know what's your marketing plan and how do you how are you going to how is it going to play a role in your company and who's on your board of directors we really had to engage in a handicap process as to the likelihood of getting a license because, you know, a management team staffed with world-class executives that doesn't get a license isn't much of a business. And an average company that gets a license isn't much of a business either, I would say. So it has evolved right now uh, that early on, it was really primarily trying to make a calculated, quantitative, qualitative decision about who's going to get a license. We're kind of past that right now. Now we're really looking carefully at the quality of the management team, their pro forma estimates about what their uh, revenue and their profit's going to be, what their commitment towards compliance is, what's the total addressable market that they're addressing in the state or country they're in, how many licenses are going to be granted, is it going to be an oversupplied state or or jurisdiction where the price of wholesale flowers nosediving because there's too many sellers on enough buyers, is it going to be the opposite, is it going to be a closely limited license jurisdiction where there's going to be a shortage of suppliers and a surging demand, positing higher prices, ultimately, we would try to come up with a, a scorecard that would rank and analyze all these different features, uh, quality of team, likelihood of getting a license if they didn't have total addressable market, likelihood of there being uh, too many suppliers, all these various sort of sensitivity factors to dive in. For me, my first choice is always to start the company myself. Always, always, always. You know, I do invest in many other companies, but I've generally 
you know, mostly try to conceive of something that I'm interested in. Uh, right now, it's leaning a little bit more towards the psychedelic industry and ocean tech. These are two things that interest me as an entrepreneur and as a human being. And my first and best outcome is always to try to found a company uh, rather than invest in someone else's company. I'm stubborn that way. I believe, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid of risk, but I like to try to take the risk on myself. On the other hand, my belief is when you don't believe that you have uh, unique skill sets to navigate an industry that you're interested in, then you have to enter as an investor. And I would say for investors that enter the cannabis industry, if they haven't been doing it for a long time, they should probably look to see if there's an ETF or a fund that will de-risk the investment for them. Because you know, I've had the benefit of participating or looking at or investing in literally hundreds of companies, and I've learned the hard way, what separates a good from a great, a great from an exceptional company. And the value of context of seeing so many companies in so many different markets, either succeed or fail, gives me, I would say, a level of knowledge or literacy that a new investor of the space is simply incapable of achieving, not because I'm any smarter, but because I've been doing it for 10 years. So I fundamentally believe that if you haven't been doing it for a long time, you need to have a diversified portfolio approach to investing rather than just choosing one company that you pick, you know, because your brother or your sister-in-law or someone introduced you to them. Um, and you got to go through the quantitative and qualitative analysis to really determine, you know, will this company succeed? Will they become profitable? And will I make a return on my investment? I personally, Charlie, new emerging asset classes where you can't really look back for decades and see what a legacy operator that successful looks like. I'm comfortable in these new emerging asset classes, cannabis, psychedelics, um, alternative proteins, what have you. And I, I, I'm good in that where there's not a clear incumbent. I, I like that, but that's not for everybody. And I will say that ultimately you've just got to bring sound analysis to determine how to invest. We always talk about taking a a machete to the jungle and you're you're hacking a path which takes you ages and it'll be easier for people coming behind you not simple but a bit easier but that first path is the one that takes a lot of the effort but you don't have anything to look back and evaluate to say well we've got to go that way you've got to just say well we think the beach is over there so we're going to just hack on through and hopefully we get to somewhere somewhere pleasant so bring us through now to global go um, this is a, a consulting business specifically focused on cannabis. Is it taking in psychedelics as well, or is it exclusively green? Uh, so Global Go is um, myself and a number of other well-regarded and well-known executives uh, came together to start trying to bring uh, advisory aimed at, if you will, exporting best practices that we've all been part and parcel of developing in our, in our local markets, Canada and the United States. And beginning to try to guide new entrants in new emerging jurisdictions for both cannabis and now psychedelics about what best practices they ought to embrace in order to build, you know, best in class businesses in their new emerging jurisdictions. And we've been able to build sort of a global network of offices including uh, three offices in Europe, two in South America, uh, one in Asia, um, one in Mexico. And we're finding that there are, you know, in these jurisdictions, so many great promising companies that are able to benefit from the legacy experience we've had as operators in our own jurisdictions. And very much now aiming at both the cannabis and the psychedelic industry and doing all sorts of different service offerings from licensing, where we're one of the best in class companies in North America for getting licenses to branding, strategic M&A, how to raise capital, uh, how to recruit a top management team. What should I grow? Where should I grow? How do I grow? Do I, how do I extract all the sort of like the, the nuts and bolts that we have learned over our journeys to help minimize some of the stumbles that typically companies will make when they're entering a new industry for the first time. And I say that because I've made those stumbles. So from, from, that, from that body of work, you, you're in probably a pretty unique position to give a perspective on how you see uh, cannabis in a lot of the different countries and markets around the world. Like what's your, give us a quick whistle-stop tour on the sort of the global footprint of the cannabis industry at the moment in the, in the key jurisdictions. You know, we're going to 
paint the world green inevitably. Yeah. It is happening, but it's very chalk block. And so things for me that I try to keep in mind as I navigate either as an advisor or a founder entrepreneur is step one for any cannabis company is to have a viable path to do well in their domestic market. There's too many companies that have entered in emerging jurisdictions with an export-based focus. And I think that's kind of hokum right now. Not to say that that cannot develop, but you got to strip this down to fundamentals before you can even conceive of becoming a exporter. In my opinion, you have to really analyze your domestic market to see what is the total addressable market. Where do you fit in servicing that market? And can you make a profitable business in your domestic market? And I'm going to stop on that because I think that's a critical, important point. In my opinion, so many country companies that have got licenses in emerging jurisdictions, whether it's South Africa, Colombia, Uruguay, et cetera, et cetera, built their whole business model on an export strategy, which hasn't really come into full focus, in my opinion. Yes, there have been many instances of huge quantities of cannabis being exported, imported, but largely, I think, you're going to see that most jurisdictions want to have a domestic industry servicing their domestic market. Mm -hmm. And it's only when their domestic industry is not able to service the demand in the market that they will look for importation. So for example, Israel has been importing a lot of cannabis, medical cannabis from Canada, but largely I would say you've got to really believe that you can build a profitable business in your domestic market. And that's step one for me. And then knowing what is the mindset of the regulator uh, is the I've actually had the privilege of consulting with a number of governments across the world on cannabis programs. And really, you need to get an understanding, is the regulator looking, what is the sort of the policy goal that the regulator is trying to achieve? Are they trying to just get rid of organized crime, get it out of the cannabis industry entirely and transfer it to a regulated taxable industry. That's part of it. Are they trying to build an economic driving force that can create great jobs and create meaningful tax bases and even foster an export economy? That's what I want to know. I want to know, is the regulator doing this reluctantly because they're kind of afraid of the plant? Or is the regulator looking at this as a huge potential activation for economic empowerment? The more the regulator is embracing a free market approach, the more interested I am in participating in that market. The more the regulator is looking at this like it's plutonium that needs to be handled with care, the more concerned I am about mm -hmm. entering the market because if there's not going to be patients and customers because the government makes it like trying to thread the eye of a needle, then I'm not that interested because we've seen historically when the local addressable market is too small because the regulator puts too many negative covenants on how to prescribe medical cannabis, it usually is a formula for losing money. Yeah, no, I, I hear you on that one. So it's, it's a, a decade plus or, or in and around there for you in cannabis now. What are you, how, how has the stigma changed around the plant? Obviously, like, it's different in different areas of the world, right? But in, in your eyes, like, what has been the material shifts in how this plant has been um, viewed by the powers that be? I'll, I'll tell a, so, a social story here. So mm. when I first started, when we went public with Pharmacan, I could no longer keep my dirty little secret secret anymore. I had to update my LinkedIn and be a I was actually going to ask you on that because when you were saying that at the top and you were saying, I, you know, I, I kind of hid behind your hospitality business, I think you said, did, did you tell people at dinner parties and stuff that you were, you were doing the cannabis thing or, or, or was, it, was it literally just you kept the whole thing pretty quiet? I feel like friends because me and my buddies – we just love cannabis our whole life. Yeah. So yeah. we're like, I heard crew that I grew up with, you know, I thought it was badass and cool, but truthfully, mm -hmm. it was called polite company. I kept it to myself. So it went from you're like people looking at me, like I had a, you know, a horn coming out of the top of my forehead or, or that I was, you know, a drug dealer or, or some unsavory element. So that was like the first couple of years where I was trying to keep it to myself. I was having to defend it. When we went public, I had a few of my customers in my hospitality business write me angry missives telling me how disappointed they were in me and how they would never deal with my company and that I'm a drug wow. dealer causing social decay. And I was like, wow, that's why I wanted to keep it a secret. Okay. Then by 2015, all of a sudden, I was trying to keep it a secret for another reason, because it would suck all the energy. If I went to a dinner party and people said, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a CEO of a public cannabis company. Literally, 
I was spending the whole night talking. Everyone was just so unbelievably fascinated by it at that point. So I went from like outre to very popular. And now it's got to the point where I don't want to talk about it because I feel like it's trite, like, oh, another person in cannabis. Like, <laughs> keep it quiet because people will look at me negatively, publicize it because that's all people want to talk about. And then keep it quiet because I don't want to just be like another person in cannabis anymore. Yeah. Is it different with psychedelics? I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm just so I'm amazed at the speed in which the psychedelic kind of conversation uh, has come through as well. Have you felt the same kind of thing there? Because for me, this is this is what I always think about psychedelics is pretty much everyone that you know will have either smoked a joint, been around a joint, had someone pass them a joint, whether they wanted it or not. It's pretty like universal, right? But it's quite a big departure to say I've taken some mushrooms or had some LSD or DMT or whatever it may be. It, it, there's a big delta between a couple of puffs and yeah. <laughs> flying through the cosmos, you know? It's an amazing thing. I think that like cannabis actually was sort of like the battering ram that knocked down mm. and social attitudes and that the reason why psychedelics mm. had such a clean glide path is because cannabis did all the hard work of reforming attitudes. And then I would say that also, you know, we're right now suffering from a profound mental health crisis, you know, psychedelics. I was kind of not surprised, but also astounded to your point about how quickly it sort of developed as an industry. And there were some real, you know, parallels and some real distinctions between cannabis and psychedelics. And and you are quite right. I I myself, uh, again, I will cop to being a user. I, was also into psychedelics at a young age. And I thought they were brilliant and breathtaking. And I didn't really ever feel like it was a drug. I thought it was a spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. And I was really, if you will, into the whole, the, the, the scholarship read, you know, multiple books, just thought it was incredible. And again, didn't understand why it was stigmatized so much. So I actually think that in some sense, psychedelics are resuming the natural path that they were on. And until the culture wars of the 1960s, it was being studied at universities all over the world. And it was understood that these molecules and compounds had some really profound mental health outcomes. And then when it sort of got, if anyone's read the book, How to Change Your Mind, it tells a story about how Timmy T. Leary kind of accelerated it from a medical, you know, pharma, pharmacological approach to let's get everybody high. Let's actually like the water supply in Chicago. The Democratic Convention and at the time President Nixon, then President Nixon, just viewed it as like a bunch of hippies trying to like get in the way. So it kind of went underwater. But now we're having this resurgence. And I think it's really not very controversial, to be honest. It should be accepted and it will be accepted that there is going to be some transformative modalities that are going to forever change the delivery of mental health outcomes. And um the threat is to big pharma quite frankly, uh, who has products uh, that are expensive and not very efficacious. And now I think we're, we've overcome that. So I think it's wildly exciting how quickly psychedelics have entered the mainstream uh, culture and conversation. And as a citizen in the world, I think it's an incredibly powerful and profound Mm -hmm. thing. Totally agree. We, we should talk about some customers for a bit or patients I always like to kind of ask people to to tell me their thoughts and views on the on the patient and customer community. What, what did you, what insights have you had over over that decade about what customers patients really care about? What do they truly want? People consume cannabis for a number of different reasons, but give me some insights from 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 the customer side of things. It's really pretty conflated right now. The med, what we call medical and what we call adult use cannabis. And yeah. I'm gonna. Don't really have much of a medical cannabis market. We may have programs that are called medical cannabis, but I'm gonna say that the way the medicine is delivered and the way the patients can access the medicine is really much more like a recreational product. Meaning that, with the exception of Epidiolex, GW Pharmaceutical, there's not really a conventional path to go through a doctor and a pharmacist to get a medicine that you know is targeted at a very severe condition. So this is the thing that we need to um, deliver to our customers, whether the customer is a customer, whether they are a self-medicating patient, or whether they are actually a patient in the conventional pharmaceutical sense. 
What we really need as an industry to ultimately achieve is predictable outcomes. It's actually very simple, whatever that may be. So if I have an infection and I take an antibiotic, I know that antibiotic 99 times out of 100 is going to eliminate my infection. Okay. If that's a medical outcome, if I have a shot of tequila, I know more or less what's going to happen. That's a recreational outcome, predictable. If I have a hit off a joint or an edible, and I'm an experienced user, it's very much caveat emptor, buyer beware. You don't know. This time I found it stressful. This time I got paranoid. This time I was anxious. This time I was blissful. Even the same strain from two different crop cycles is going to have a different outcome. That's very challenging for the user experience. Now, for a pure recreational user, they may love that each time it's a little bit like a cannabis Russian roulette. I don't know exactly what's going to come out of the chamber each time. That's cool for some people. For a medical patient, though, that is seeking a specific outcome, will this help me with a specific condition? That's very uncool and very unefficacious. So, my view is that mostly what we call medical cannabis right now is a way for recreational users to consume cannabis legally. I'm not saying that they don't have a medical purpose. It may help them with sleep. That's a bona fide uh, medical objective. It may help them with anxiety. It may help them with pain. That's all legitimate. But the way we get the medicine through a dispensary, it's still quite imprecise. It's not like I take an aspirin, it will provide a, a pain relief. I know it will each and every time. If that's not sufficient and the doctor believes that an opiate pain relief is necessary, that will kill the pain. It may bring in all sorts of other horrible side effects, but it will actually address the need I came for it. We will get there in cannabis. We will get there, but this plant is mercurial to the max. It is alive, it is variable, and the biggest challenge our industry faces to whether we're delivering it to a adult use recreational user or a, a self-medicating medical user or a proper medical user is, I know what's going to happen when I take the product. That's what we need to get as an industry. And, you know, quite frankly, we're not even close to that right now. Well, what do you think needs to happen to get close to that? Because, you know, dose consistency the the correct amount the 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 effect being the same these are like I said, they're all desirable outcomes you know if you're taking it as a medicine but what needs to happen to get us closer to that i don't think we're ever going to get all the way there because the endocannabinoid system differs from one person to another mm -hmm. so it's un, it's different like again an antibiotic pretty much works or a blood thinner is pretty much going to work for every person on the planet almost the exact same way but the cannabis is such a unique product because the variability of the plant meets the variability of your endocannabinoid system meaning that it's conceivable that two people can consume the exact same product and have two different outcomes because their endocannabinoid system responds differently what we really need is personalized medicine, if you will, yeah. where you could diagnostically using, you know, I've seen companies come up with essentially DNA testing to help map yeah. your endocannabinoid system. I'm going to say that this is fuzzy science right now, but the idea is sound. And then yeah. they can help you identify what products will react favorably with the endocannabinoid system versus which products will not. Ultimately, Charlie, we're going to have to accept that this plant is incapable of perfect standardization and that mm -hmm. we're going to have to accept that as part of the transcendental beauty of this plant. But we definitely want to limit the margin of error. And the, to limit the margin of error, it's just research and study yeah. and having more commitment towards genetic research, more commitment towards growing conditions to create purely standardized conditions, probably tissue culture as a source of genetics rather than cloning and using mums. All these things will happen. But, you know, keep in mind that until recently, we couldn't study this plant in a clinical or academic setting because it was illegal. And so mm -hmm. we are just now having to catch up. This plant has yeah. been consumed for Really, 12,000 years, according to archaeologists. And it's only until recently that we began to really map the genome of the, of, the, of the molecules and then understand how it will interact with their bodies. So it is research combined with an understanding that we're never going to get to perfect standardization. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with all of that for sure. Okay, I have a couple more things I want to talk about before we wrap this one. I've been loving it so far, Paul. There's so, so much to go over. 
who do you who do you think's doing really cool stuff in the industry at the moment? Brands, individuals, groups. What what are you seeing that's like really kind of blowing your mind from other groups? Yeah, it's like trying to say who's your favorite kid. You got to be very. <laughs> I have very to ask the questions. <laughs> I love them all. I mean. Yeah. You know what? I actually think that I was having a conversation earlier today with a colleague that there's really no brands right now in cannabis that we absolutely need. In the United States, I think we would all say, uh, well, like a company like Cookies is doing a great job building a global Mm. brand, giving a good UX. Um, And I could name a few other examples, but I actually think it's still pretty disruptable right now, meaning that Mm. I don't think we don't have like a Starbucks, if you will, or a Coca-Cola or a brand that the world is just has made a huge impression. I was reading some polling uh, in the U.S. market about like out of 100 people, how many people had ever heard of one cannabis brand? And it was like two out of 100 had ever heard of any cannabis brand. And that's telling us that brand affiliations haven't really been made right now. And the cannabis consumer is pretty much saying, okay, if you don't have that, I'll take the next product. This is a thing. So there are some... Great companies that have built some pretty impressive footprints. Uh, I really think the U.S. companies are killing it right now more than the Canadian companies. Uh, I will talk against my beautiful home and native land that we have, in my opinion, somewhat not taken full advantage of our first mover that we had. And that we are paradoxically, despite being a first mover, we're on the outside looking in in the U.S. cannabis industry. I think the U.S., some U.S. companies that, you know, the big sort of what we call the fang stocks of cannabis, Green Thumb Industries, Cureleaf, Cresco Labs, Trueleaf, a few others, but those are four big names right there. Mm -hmm. I think they're building really powerful business models with huge moats around their core total addressable markets. But that's Mm -hmm. more at a corporate entity at a brand level, you know, at a product level. I, I don't think there's anything that is transformative yet i think there are some Mm. cool brands that people like but i think that those are very ephemeral and they could those preferences could be disrupted like that and an Mm. equipment side same thing i feel like you know there's some good vape companies uh dosis would be one example but Mm. again not building a fiat with their customer that is irrevocable and can easily be broken um, yeah. obviously I won't talk about any of my own companies, some of which I think are doing fantastic. Uh, but I think it's very much, um, wide open still, except mm-hmm. for the, some of these moated us companies, while their brands may not be that sensational, they have incredibly strong distribution channels that they wholly own and that they really do have dominant market share in the core markets. And that's really the key here is can you achieve dominant or near dominant market share in your core host market? If you can, fantastic. If, if you can't, you're going to have challenges. Let's finish with a couple of kind of look back, look forward moments. So what I'd really like uh, to understand from you, Paul, is uh, how do you think the year has been for cannabis? And you can use a a kind of a North American focus. uh, You can use a global focus. uh, I really don't mind. It's like there's two different markets going on here. There's the public markets, which have been pretty choppy. That's a polite word to say crappy over the last year. In the, they had this moment last February where the U.S. cannabis companies and the Canadian cannabis companies went on full-blown tilt because there was an expectation that President Biden would sweep federal reform into, at least accelerate the path towards federal reform. Did not happen. And we've been having a serious pullback. I would say a bear market right now in the public stocks. However, the actual business of cannabis continues every month to get bigger and better. The revenue and the earnings and the amount of new patients and consumers coming into the market is accelerating at a pretty steep clip month to month. So you have this sort of like dichotomy between the actual businesses and then the valuation of the businesses that the public markets are imposing. And they're paradoxically, and this is a huge opportunity, they're moving in opposite directions. As the businesses, especially in the US, are getting better and better in terms of their revenue and their earnings, their stock prices are going down. I will say that's a generational opportunity if you pick the right companies at the right price point. But globally, I'm going to say 2021, we've moved in many, many new jurisdictions beginning to articulate or architect cannabis programs. Countries that we maybe wouldn't have expected to 
leap into the fold showing interest like Lebanon, like Pakistan, like Morocco. Not that they shouldn't. These are actually where some of the lambre strains came from, but they're yeah, not, you know, we, we think usually it's only the most free and open societies. So I think it's been a stellar year for cannabis 2021 and I have no doubt that trend will continue into 2022 and really, quite frankly, into the decades beyond. What I look forward to one day is being able to smoke a joint at a licensed cannabis dispensary in Shanghai, in Moscow, in Riyadh. When that happens, that'll show that we have really succeeded in the global cannabis revolution. Yeah, and rounding off on Riyadh probably will be the last place that we get to do to enjoy that, but that will be... uh... That will be some achievement for sure from a global perspective. So you kind of started to touch on this, but I'd love to get your view on uh, 2022. So obviously you're hoping for a great, you know, decades beyond. And I, I, I share those hopes and aspirations, but come a little near term, just in the 12 months ahead, what do you think of some of the developments that we can see in 2022 for cannabis? I think those of us in North America are still crossing our fingers, holding our breath and um, saying our prayers that the federal government will begin to initiate a path towards safe banking and ultimately federal reform and legalization of cannabis. That is going when that happens. And I say when, not if, I don't know if it'd be 2022 or 20 or 2032. I don't know, but that is going to be the shot across the bow. That's going to put this whole industry on tilt and it's going to create what we need, which is huge pockets of capital that wants to come in that cannot come in yet, or is choosing not to come in to come in. And that will give a lift to the global industry. And it will likely pressure other countries to expedite their reform. So that's what we're, that's the big moment right now. Obviously we're also watching Germany and Mexico carefully to see whether they will have the political will to get the intention of their parliaments to legalize cannabis into actually legalized cannabis programs. And I mentioned Mexico, which has now been talking about legalizing cannabis for not one year, not two years, not even three, but four years, and still hasn't got it across the finish line. I'm hoping this is the year that Mexico brings 90 million new consumers into an adult use market. And I'm hoping that this is the year that Germany actually opens up to adult use. If Germany opens up, it'll be a cascading domino effect where between the Swiss pilot project, Germany going full adult use, it should sweep across the continent. Mm. And if you can have these two things happen this year, Germany, Mexico, actually adult, bringing in adult use, America just doing something incremental, even if it's to the Safe Banking Act, that will make 2022 year the banner year for global cannabis. Mm. That's cool. And, and a view on the UK, how, how you see us with our role in Europe. Obviously, we have a very sophisticated uh, legacy uh, industry. And, you know, we've been legal medicinally for you know, three years last month. Um, still very, very slow progress. But do you see the UK kind of following in the footsteps of where Germany's going and some of our other counterparts on the continent? You know, it, predictions when it comes to governments and, and politicians is a, is a fool's game to predict. But I will say that you know, the UK has got a really viable and socially accepted and valuable medical program. And that's the precondition. I get it. Start with the medical program, whatever the anxieties that good civil society may have uh, about what happens are usually quickly dismissed or diminished. And that makes it easier to articulate a path towards full adult use. I got to believe that if Germany does get it done this year, uh, it's going to accelerate the UK's commitment. And it seems to me, it's simply good politics. Like To me, this is an issue where mm. if you're a politician that is uh, needing to accelerate your own popularity, whether it's um, Boris Johnson or whether it's Joe Biden or whatever the coalition is in Germany, this is not a contentious issue. This is a, a unifying issue. It's popular across cities, in rural areas. It's popular with young. It's popular with old. Even in America, where you have like essentially a soft civil war between the Democrats and the Republicans, it's popular with the Republicans and it's popular with the Democrats. It's not a contentious bipartisan issue. So I'm no politician, but to me, this is like low-hanging fruit. This Mm. is absolutely going to 
increase your popularity with your voting public if you do it. And not only that, it's going to make everything a little bit better. You're going to have more high paying jobs or higher paying jobs. You're going to have patient safety. You're going to have meaningful precautions against teenage use, which is dangerous. We can look now empirically and say that teenage use always goes down in legal jurisdictions. That's huge. You're going to have taxes when we're all running deficits because of the, the pandemic. So it's just such a it's just win, 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 win. And you'll probably have harm reduction in that, you know, to me, the greatest menace of all those substances that we've covered on this conversation, whether it's DMT, psilocybin, LSD, mm-hmm. cannabis, the one that I would encourage people to avoid is alcohol. It's dangerous. Yeah. That's a dangerous, yeah. dangerous drug. And so you actually have uh, empirical evidence that alcohol consumption goes down in legalized cannabis jurisdictions. So therefore, it's harm reductive. And I would just encourage all governments to not be afraid to look carefully at what happened in Canada. Look what's going on in Portugal. Look what's going on in the United States and realize that whatever stereotype boogeyman that you're concerned about actually is just a myth that there is only positive outcomes, no negative outcomes. You'll be popular. It's just a winning move for all politicians Mm. to face this right now. Well, I totally echo all of that. And I think it's uh, needed more than ever. So hopefully common sense prevails, Paul. But um, all that remains is for me to say thank you so much for giving uh, some time to talk with us today. Always really enjoy our conversations. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you again in the future soon. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for making uh, time and space for me today. So I just want to say thank you again to Paul for taking the time to talk with us. As you've probably worked out, he's an extremely busy guy. So it was uh, really kind of him to give us some time today to take us through some of those stories, some of that journey, and give us so many insights into the cannabis industry at large. Thank you to everyone for listening. You know, I really appreciate you coming along this journey with us. I'm excited for some of the guests we've got coming in the, in the next few weeks and beyond. Uh, next week uh, is certainly one of my favorites. Uh, we have Jason Wan, who is known to many of you as the head of creative from Puffco. Puffco is one of the most awarded, if not the most awarded, hardware company in the cannabis space um, with amazing products and services, which really sit at the sort of inflection point between you know, technology and design. Jason himself has lived a wild and varied career from uh, being a rock star when he was younger, making millions, blowing millions, right through then to uh, working his way up uh, from a design perspective to working with Steve Jobs at Apple. I'm really excited to talk to him about some of those uh, moments with Steve uh, in that creative process. And then, you know, he kind of had his own studio and ended up uh, in his role where he currently resides as head of creative for Puffco. So I'm really looking forward to that show. And I really hope you can join me. Uh, That's next week. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye bye. The Glow Show. We believe in the power of cannabis.